also we need to be able to have a system that looks at the causative factor. Otherwise we're just treating the expression of the imbalance, but not the causative factor itself. That's the, that's the challenge with psychiatry. Psychiatry is a field that deals with symptoms, not cures. Ding dong. That's wisdom knocking on your door, or I guess hitting the doorbell technically, given the sound I just made. And that wisdom, you're going to want to open the door for what this guest has to say. And you already did because you hit play on the episode. So you already did your part. Now it's up to us to deliver. And with today's guest, Dr. Dan Engel, I know for a fact it's going to deliver. As a board-certified neurologist and psychiatrist, Dr. Dan has a unique background in integrative psychiatry, neurocognitive restoration, peak performance medicine, and psychedelic research. He utilizes this knowledge and experience to help individuals shift from illness and trauma to health and happiness. It is a transdisciplinary approach that this conversation uh, is across many of these different disciplines, and it's one that, well, I just want to jump right into, not delay it any longer. I do need to read a disclaimer for this episode, and that is that the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion, and it is not an endorsement of use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and the current variable widespread illegality of their usage. So with all of that out of the way, let's jump into it with Dr. Dan Engel. This is Below the Line. Dr. Dan, welcome to Below the Line. Awesome, James. Happy to hear be here, man. It's been a while and uh, since we last chatted, but we have worked on a few different things together, uh, and there's uh, and I feel blessed to get to work with you on on a handful of different things, including Magic Mind. And it's a uh, mm. so it's it it's been a while, and I have a feeling today's time will not be enough to cover the different areas that I basically am going to get to prime your noggin for free. For this conversation, it's going to be 100% selfish of just areas of medicine, of psychiatry, of the future, of of healthcare, just all of these different areas that I'm curious about and selfishly just would love to hear your perspective on. Hopefully, it's interesting to listeners as well. But this is a, a solo mission of me getting all of your info for free um, in, in one of our awesome. various, various convos. So... Thank you yeah. for coming. I want to kick it off. Just, uh, do you mind giving listeners a little bit of an overview of your career? As you know, our intro covers the fact that you're a neurologist, psychiatrist, but I don't think those words really do any justice to the path that you've taken within medicine. Do you giving? Do you mind giving listeners a bit of an overview of your career? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, let's see where where I start. So. Originally, uh, most of my training was in Western allopathic medicine. Uh, as mentioned, I'm trained in psychiatry and neurology. I've been boarded in both. Uh, my fellowships are in forensic psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. 
Uh, I've had practices in a number of different ar arenas and fields, detoxification medicine, regenerative medicine, neurorehabilitation, what I would call transformational medicine. And all of that is, you know, working in these, these arenas of combining what I would describe as hardware technologies, more of the allopathic side, and software technologies, what we might call mind, heart, and soul side of the equation. Um, so to that extent, I've lived in the Amazon River Basin for a year, uh, studying with ayahuasca, went through a deep apprenticeship there. Um, and have been over the last decade consulting to a variety of different um, indigenous and plant medicine healing centers globally, uh, whether that's with Iboga and Ibogaine, Ayahuasca, um, other uh, synthetic and um, more what we might call like the regenerative nootropic medicines like ketamine, cannabis, um, things that are really good to bridge the um, transpersonal state with the the healing and the the like hard sciences state is was there an experience um, that that forked that medical road or how, that's obviously yeah. pretty unique for for a doctor to go down that that path was it a single experience or walk me through how you took on yeah. that shape within your career yeah, the, the thing that got me into um, psychiatry and neurology in the first place, because I was going to go on a very different path. Uh, in college, I had started uh, apprenticing and doing uh, moonlighting shifts in the ER and in the surgical uh, ICUs and just really enjoyed the hands-on aspect of that interventional medicine. It's very clear to see at the end of the day if you did the job. It's in, it's out. It's transactional. It's very, you know, evidential, um, and there's a there's a like a puzzle, like an immediate puzzling uh, process that you, you come into a situation. You have to immediately assess and triage the situation for levels of acuity, levels of intervention, short term um, intervention that turns into long term gains. I, I just loved that aspect, and so I was going to go into either ER or surgical care. And as I mentioned on previous podcasts, and I think you and I may have even talked about this in the past, two weeks before medical school, I dove off a pier, hit a sandbar, broke my neck, mm. broke, uh, crushed uh, the fifth cervical vertebra, um, started med school in one of those big halos where, you know, they screwed into your skull because uh, I had the opportunity or the option of either internal fixation or external fixation. Internal fixation means rods along the spine to keep that fracture stabilized or external fixation means the halo screwed into your skull and then you wear a chest plate and a back plate so you're you're really in this externally fixed position for three months wow. so i started med school with that experience and that immediately got me interested in neurology and eventually into psychiatry um, so that was one of those fork in the road moments for sure at the beginning of my medical like my formal medical training and at the end of my formal medical training, I was introduced to ayahuasca. And that was the next deliberate fork in the road. Um, what year was I this? Had, uh, uh, when I was introduced to Aya, uh, would have been uh, 15 years ago now. Wow. <laughs> that went by fast. I still remember the first 
experience with it like it was yesterday. It was so impactful. And it's one of those you know, life-defining moments that really encodes into your nervous system. That's why it's so immediately available. Like I can pull that file up right now. Do you mind if, I, if I ask about the, when you say that and kind of your eyes kind of go up into the middle distance as you think about it, what's going through your head as you talk about it being such a vivid memory? Yeah, there's for me and for so many people that I've had the opportunity to work with or mentor or at least just witness, there's life before medicine work and there's life after medicine work. And that was very much the case for me um, on a few different arenas. Um, so I had grown up playing a variety of different combat sports and competitive athletics and played soccer all the way through college and <clears throat> snowboarded and skateboarded and, and was just enough to really wreck myself a lot. And, um, but also stubborn enough to just keep kind of keep plowing through it. So I had about six that, that are documented really significant concussions and all of those, uh, resulted in a pretty severe post-concussive syndrome where I had trouble with attention, focus, concentration, hypersomnolence, which is called narcolepsy. Um, well, when you get the, the specific diagnosis for that is, involves a sleep test, but essentially it includes these like drop attacks. So there's like hyper availability and consistency and in, in falling asleep quickly and in really un, <laughs> unpredictable and at times really uh, uh, socially unacceptable arenas. Mm -hmm. So there was this like neurologic picture of my brain being pretty hindered and still experiencing what we might call the neurologic result of trauma versus the psychological result of traumas, you know, classically this PTSD picture. And um, what many of the medicines are becoming appreciated for now and being able to resolve that trauma. I didn't really have that degree of trauma um, other, other than it may be some, not the classic kind of PTSD, but we might call it more like complex PTSD. What's that? I'm um, not sure which what's the difference. The differential is like um, classic PTSD is like veterans on the, on the battlefield mm -hmm. or somebody that is in a really horrific experience where they significantly feel like their life is either threatened or at danger or they're about to die. Mm -hmm. So it might be a violent um, motorcycle accident or some kind of motor vehicle accident or um, an assault or any other number of kind of physical sexual or like existential significant threats. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and then as a result of that trauma, the, the memory is encoded <clears throat> and the psyche is working around that memory to try and work the experience to resolution. So that looks like nightmares, flashbacks, hyper avoidance, hyper startle. The system is geared on this like sympathetic overdrive because the memory is still alive even though it happened a long time ago the psyche still registers the threat as now that is classic ptsd complex ptsd is this more like contemporary over the last half a dozen maybe years decade or so appreciation that many people run a similar psychological kind of makeup as far as how they view themselves and how they view the world in general and, and their life in general that's based in what we might call adverse childhood experiences. And those experiences could be serial experiences of neglect, um, 
uh, more of like the soft psychological abuse. I, and I mean soft versus hard, because like hard psychological abuse, we typically think of that as like physical abuse, like, oh, mom or dad or caregivers or some, you know, other person abused me, beat me, like that physical thing I can point to that happened, right? right? More of the softer abuse is like this, it's, it's less obvious. It tends to be more protracted and more chronic. And it tends to in, encode into these early childhood years, our personality and our experience of how we kind of make up our defense mechanisms and how we, we relate to, to certain narratives about how we're trying to make meaning of that, mm. that disconnect, that challenge, that wound. So the class, the classic versus the complex PTSD, they can lead to a similar experience of hyperstartleness or arm, layers of armor or layers of protection. For me, I had significant layers of armor around uh, intimacy. It was really hard for me to let anybody get close. And at the end of all my medical training, I had just started a clinic and uh, my partner at the time and I were going through a separation and an eventual divorce and I couldn't feel any of it. And you, in our mediation, what do you mean? Like it just, I, it, I, like, it, I couldn't it, feel the grief. Did you know the grief was the there grief. and you couldn't feel it or were I you just like, totally knew it was there. And, and when we were in mediation and the mediator said, um, okay, like, you know, my, my job here is to try and hear each of your positions. How can, how can we work to a, uh, a smooth resolution and kind of, you know, honorably part ways, so to speak. And I just didn't want anything to do with that. I was like, you can have everything. I just want out. I'm leaving. I'm moving. I'm starting my life different. You know, I was like, it was just very cut, clean exit, mm. um, non-emotional, cold. And I could see how that landed on her. And I realized in that moment, I didn't want to continue that cycle. I didn't want to continue and contri contrib contribute to anyone else feeling that way. Like she was like the auxiliary kind of compassion that I couldn't feel. Mm. And like holding it, I knew that it was down deep and I couldn't access it. So did that manifest in made, other uh, other ways like uh i imagine for many people they could turn to substance or alcohol or just like going so deep into their career did it manifest in other ways that you look back and say god that was totally. unhealthy yeah i had a daily cannabis habit for about four or five years mm. and initially cannabis was an amazing medicine for me because it's very much you know one of those creativity and uh, oh, door yeah. openers mm -hmm. and somatic door openers, right? Uh, it was the first time that I really started recognizing and feeling into my body as, as a, a, a reservoir of emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And so I could start, but before that, before I started working with cannabis, my body was just a machine and I was going to full throttle especially on the soccer field or in any kind of athletics, I was just going to full throttle down and move through opposition to the detriment of my body. And anytime it was injured, I would just, you know, tape it up and <laughs> keep going. Mm. 
And so it got me into my body, it got me into dance, it got me into creativity, it got me into like all these aspects of life that were beautiful and helpful. But like all medicines, they have their sweet spot. If you use, if you don't use enough, there's no effect. And if you use too much, it's detrimental. Mm. So over time, I, I, I ended up experiencing a, a cannabis dependence that was part of my kind of emotional numbing as well. And so that was one aspect, like I mentioned, with like the hyper focus in scholastics or the hyper focus in competitive arenas or the continued kind of like serial relationships where I would just be in this like serial dating experience. And anytime it got to a degree of intimacy, I just bounced. Mm -hmm. So there was a variety of different ways that I was consistently unavailable intimately. And it was just at that kind of separation moment with my partner at the time where I realized that I, I didn't want to live that way and I wanted to address it. And so um, I had made a, a big prayer a couple of weeks later in a sweat lodge um, to help me open up my heart. And somebody in that lodge who became one of my best friends later, a naturopath friend of mine, he said after that lodge, he said, you know, I think I have some then the, I, I could invite you to be a part of something I think that might help. And that was an ayahuasca circle. And I hadn't heard anything about ayahuasca and I didn't know anything about it. And I barely knew him, but I trusted him pretty immediately. He's a very trustworthy guy. And uh, so a few weeks later, I was in my first ayah ceremony and I had so many different experiences. It was the first time my brain felt like it came online, like fully, like the, the residual pattern of all that post-concussive syndrome went away like that. For listeners that might not you. know about what those symptoms <laughs> are with, and yeah. for, for myself as well, for more articulate, what does a post-concussive yeah. life look so like? Yeah, it's, it sucks. <laughs> and it's the reason that I ended up writing the concussion repair manual, um, because I put myself in the laboratory for trying to figure out a lot of different therapeutics. And I went all around like the hardware technologies uh, to find what would work. And I found a lot of things would work and none of those still do I think were as impactful as ayahuasca. I didn't put ayahuasca or the psychedelics in the book because this was even seven years ago now and psychedelics are a lot more appreciated now than they were even seven years ago. So I didn't wanna have the psychedelics chapter be the one thing that people pointed to and therefore said that the rest of the book wasn't accurate. Mm -hmm. So I held that chapter, but for me, I was principally supportive and the other therapeutics that, that I was investigating too at the time, including nootropics, which we'll get to, um, were helpful in resolving the PCS, post-concussive syndrome. And those symptoms are predominantly around what would be described as executive function, um, social engagement, and like our um, kind of resilience capacity. And so executive function, attention, memory, focus, concentration. And when I got stalled on memory because it's this particular kind of memory too. It's short-term memory, but it's also short-term memory being encoded into long-term memory and then being able to retrieve that memory. So there's a lot of aspects there about memory. So attention, focus, concentration, memory, shifting sets, being able to go from one thing to another and then back to the original thing. Um, reaction time, um, the ability to have a multi-layered kind of narrative and, and process laid out and then be able to achieve and kind of goal orient each step of the way. There's a lot of different things that we would call kind of executive function. 
And then in the social arena, um, it, it really sucks to have your brain not work well <laughs> because it's not obvious. Uh, you can't point to it. And like if, if I smash my, you know, if I broke my neck or if I, you know, I've had untold number of different injuries where I've, I've worn different braces and casts and slings and uh, fixators, there was obvious that something happened. But when you have your brain smashed, it's not obvious. And most of the athletes and veterans and people that I work with would say the same thing. It would be better for my leg to get blown up or blown off than my head to continuously feel like it's not working because at least then there's an obvious issue that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so socially, it's, it's frustrating to try and continue to tell people and, and help people understand the experience. So it can lead to social isolation. Um, it also kind of the resiliency factor this is getting into that third piece. It's also can be really overwhelming just to have a whole lot of stimulation because the brain's stuck in an inflammatory loop. So there's usually an inflammatory cascade and there might be a, a residual trauma foci or focal point that maybe it's firing that, that, that kind of sub syndromal firing might look like, um, like petite mal seizures to, to the farthest degree, but on that spectrum, it can still look like, um, intermittent, uh, neuropathy or radiculopathy, or kind of like these uh, more, um, systemic neurological presentations centrally. Um, if my brain is not, if it's either downregulated because it's too stressed or it's upregulated because it's too stressed, they, they, they both have, they're the same kind of thing. They just happen over different timelines. So acutely we get stressed and then over time we just get tired and therefore fatigued. Hmm. So all of this kind of like bleeds into our resiliency. And if the brain's in an acute inflammatory state, or if it's just chronically fatigued, then in either of those situations, there's going to be things like light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, social engagement sensitivity, um, just the energetics of a particular place might be like a little bit too intense. Like for me, it was just, it was hard to be around a group of people because that input into my nervous system was just too raw and it would just be too grating or exciting Two two friends so of mine, all of that. two friends of mine come to, to mind one. Um, and I don't know if it was post concussive syndrome, but it's not one. It sounds like this is something that people can have and have no idea that it is, they just might totally. think like, man, it's just tough having a newborn and I'm, and I'm really out of it or my job is really stressful and have no clue that there's something that's not just uh, chronically wrong, but also it sounds like potentially fixable, which is obviously the good news. But um, it reminds me of a friend of mine that's, on, that's been on the podcast, Pete Holmes. He was a comedian, and I can't remember if it was Post, it was after a concussion, although I think it, no, it was, it was after a concussion and a car wreck that he said that he couldn't, he was a stand-up comedian and he couldn't be funny for six months. And he talked about it on his podcast of like, I'll get up and I'll do a set in front of 500 people. And it's my material that I know will make them laugh. They will laugh and I won't understand why they're laughing. And he would talk about it on his podcast. And someone said, you might have. Uh, some something to do with your your accident that you also talked on the podcast. He, he talks about how he thinks it's a miracle that he had a podcast to be able to talk about this because someone wrote in and said, try this thing with your finger 
to get your eyes you know, locked in or something. And I don't know how it was related, but he said the concussion uh, symptoms included not recognizing when something was funny or how to be funny for six months. And he was able to do something, some type of therapy. Um, and it was, it was related to his vision that allowed him to, it just clicked after like two or three weeks of this therapy. And another friend mm-hmm. um, basically uh, said that like two years ago, he was like, I just felt like my brain was broken. And he was a, he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he was like, I just felt like my brain stopped working. I would go into work and, and I could push along. Well, my brain was just not working. Um, and, and he ended up quitting a job and just kind of went this devolution and and I'm one and he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu so and loves it so I'm wondering if it's somewhat um, related because as you're talking about that resiliency he's so resilient and then at 38 or so just started to kind of like quit things left and right and friends family we've all wondered like what it could be um, anyhow both of those friends come to mind as you're talking about these these symptoms and before my my friend pete had mentioned it i never had, or you I just never really hear people talk about the ongoing uh, symptoms of of concussions yeah <clears throat> i think your point's kind of spot on it's a silent epidemic and no two brains are the same no two injuries are the same and so everybody's healing trajectory is different Every, every brain is unique, every injury unique, and every healing trajectory is unique. So we can't compare it. It's not a unilateral comparison. It's, and that's, that's one of the arts of neurology and psychiatry too, right? No two people are the same, no two minds are the same, and no two experiences are the same. <laughs> that's part of the reason I, I'm fascinated by neurology and psychiatry because it's the hardware and the software kind of together. And that would be the first thing that I would think of too with your friends. Um, particularly when there's an immediate shift, the long-term shift might be something like dementia or, or from stacked, acute, ongoing, um, impact traumas, that's something called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And that looks like early onset dementia, um, that many pro combat athletes now are being retroactively diagnosed with, particularly if they die and now we can do a post-mortem autopsy and we can see that. Uh, You can do some brain scans now that would show some shrinkage, some global shrinkage. That's another kind of indicative factor, Uh, but that's usually driven by symptoms. And sometimes if those symptoms are slow over time, it just like, like, oh, he just kind of like, you know, the wind in his sails just kind of like, dropped over a period of time. The two people that you mentioned was like, it was acute, it was immediate. And um, that resiliency factor, particularly with people who have resilience and they're used to pushing through, that's gonna last for a, a while, but usually there's a threshold at which all of a sudden now it just drops. Hmm. And so that post-concussive syndrome in the acute phase that can stretch over months and years too, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, environmental sensitivity, like all of those things, like the nervous system is just so keyed up. 
And there's some overlap too to something that we might even take into consideration now, which is long COVID. The experience of the neurologic ramifications from some people who experience COVID can also look like this just challenged neurologic symptom uh, system. Um, so the presentation can be similar. Um, just low energy, mental fog. Brain fog is one of the classic symptoms of some of the things that I mentioned might be a little bit more obvious in post-concussive syndrome, but another thing is uh, dizziness, brain fog, a sense of even being outside of kind of reality or not really being like in like, you know, it's almost like being John Malkovich, you know, where you like see, see his profile outside of his uh, consciousness. Right. It's like, wow, I'm not really in my brain or like in my body. Um, post COVID can feel a little bit like that fatigue, dullness, um, bland depression, apathy, anhedonia, not, you know, lack of motivation. Um, that's not, and, it, and, and sometimes it's hard to say if, like, is that a physical fatigue or is it a mental fatigue? Mm -hmm. And, and you can differentiate the two, um, kind of like if you stayed up for days at a time, but then you had a bunch of coffee. Your body might be really tired, but your mind might be awake, and now you're just wired and you can't sleep. Well, the, the opposite of that is also true. Um, fatigue can be you kind of like teased apart to see if it's if the generative predominant underlying factor is a is a neurologic issue, or might be an adrenal issue, or um, or even a gut issue, because most of our um, neurotransmitters are actually produced and stored in the gut and then transferred to the brain. So there's a thing we are in this just beautifully complex, amazing organism of intricate interconnectivity. And most people's concussion, this is important to say too, 90, 95% of everyone's mild to moderate concussions will spontaneously heal. Mm -hmm. Those that don't tend to be because the system is troubled um, in addition to what it's trying to heal. So what I mean by that is if there's a lot of stress in a person's system, then that will limit the ner nervous system's ability to heal an injury via concussion. And you don't have to have a loss of consciousness to have a concussion. Hmm. That's an old idea. You just have to have an alteration of consciousness, like to, to notice that there's a little bit of like a, even a dizziness or kind of like, wow, that was, that was big. Or like, I got to get my bearings for a moment. You don't have to lose con consciousness to have a concussion. And then, so as we're kind of playing out the differential of why a person would have a hard time healing from a concussion, if there's a lot of psychological or neurological stress, if the hormones are downregulated and you don't have enough energy in the system to drive healing, if the immune system is um, overrun by, by dealing with other kind of ancillary ongoing infections like uh, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which is mono, or CMV, cytomegalovirus, these are in the herpes virus category, or COVID. Having a concussion in the midst of COVID is like a double whammy because your immune system is trying to deal with the active infection. Um, mold exposure is another kind of like pathogen that you could put in that immune system dysregulation piece. And the, <clears throat> the fourth one, because yeah, you had stress, right? Psychological or uh, neurological. 
um, hormones, immune system, and the fourth one is gut dysfunction. And so if somebody's guts inflamed or um, challenged for a variety of reasons that could look like irritable bowel syndrome, small intestine bacteria overgrowth, or something called SIBO, uh, diverticulitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, like inflammatory bowel conditions. The reason that that's challenging is because it's oftentimes hard to um, utilize, assimilate, and um, put to good kind of actionary steps the nutrients and the ingredients of the foods or the supplements that we might take in. So somebody might be on an awesome diet, great supplement stack, but if they have an inflammatory bowel condition and they're not able to absorb those nutrients, now you can see that they're going to be challenged. It doesn't mean that they won't resolve it. It just means it might take longer. So in the uh, centers that I've run in specific to neuro rehab, that's usually what we would see. Those kind of four primary issues. And outside of that, most, the vast majority of people's mild to moderate concussions um, different from severe concussions, like if, you, if somebody transected a cord or if they had an acute um, diffuse uh, axonal injury or you know something that was really severe and really global, those don't tend to heal that readily on their own and therefore you need some extra therapeutics, hyperbaric, stem cells, exosomes, a variety of different like neurorehabilitative strategies and technologies, including what you just mentioned like with eye exercises because like 80% of what the brain is feeling at any given time is visual information. And so reading can be very taxing to somebody who's had a brain injury. Mm. And a lot of the neurorehabilitative programs are in some way involving eye tracking and this like vestibular ocular motor system, which consumes mm. a lot of energy. How would you and test? So some of how, that might, you, how do you test for this? If someone is listening to this and is, and is like, shit, I played football growing up or I hit my head a year and a half ago and I've always felt a little off. How would you test um, for this if someone came through one of your clinic's doors? Yeah. Well, if people are doing it at home, um, it's helpful to get a baseline cognitive measure. And so there's a good company called CNSVS where you can do cognitive testing online. I don't think you have to go through a practitioner in order to, but I think it, it does have some cost. I think it's maybe $30 a test. Um, and then that'll give you a really cool profile about reaction time, memory, focus, attention, concentration, some of these more uh, like data oriented um, ex examples of uh, valence and performance in the neurological arena or the executive function. Um, and then once you have a baseline, I recommend anybody who's going to get hit, get a baseline. Anybody who's in any kind of sports, especially combat sports, get a baseline first before you get hit so that we can tell what your optimal baseline looks like. And then after you get hit, because most of the time, particularly in playing combat sports over a long period of time, um, like, for example, last week, was it last week? No. Uh, no, it was just this week, Monday, I had a consultation with uh, essentially a guy who had played the highest level water polo. And water polo doesn't necessarily have like pro leagues, but you have these really competitive tournaments. And he's been playing water polo for close to 45 years. And, and he's in excellent shape. But he's also noticed some early dementia-like symptoms. Forgetfulness, problems in the executive re function arena, which we already talked a lot about. 
Um, and it was one of those recognitions like, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about water polo being a combat sport, but of course it is. You're constantly getting elbowed in the face and taking balls to the head mm-hmm. and then just plowing through it. And he, he doesn't even know how many times he's broken his nose. Well, there's no way that you can break your nose without having a significant impact to your brain. Mm-hmm. That's just an example, right? Yeah, so I've heard soccer it might also is be one a, of the worst sports because of the just the repetition of these concussive hits. Um, or what do they call them? Subconcussive soccer. hits, things that don't knock you out, but you're doing headers and years of that builds up. Yeah, it was notable. When, I mean, I could, I could do a little screenshot of the scan I have in my brain. Um, I got a brain scan at one of the Amens clinics, which is they're one of the better in the industry for addressing concussion and post-concussive syndrome because of their kind of advanced. Daniel Amens very good at advancing the field of psychiatry and neurology by introducing this new type of brain scan, which is more of a functional brain scan versus an anatomic brain scan like MRIs and CT CAT scans, you're looking at anatomy, you're not really looking at function. So unless a big chunk of your brain is actually taken out or swollen, or if there's a big um, like infarct or injury, you wouldn't necessarily see it. But if you're looking at a functional brain scan, like how it uptakes glucose and it's like metabolic rate, now you can tell a lot. So he introduced this, spec scan there's also there's another comparative in the market called the cirrus scan and um i was considering coming on board they were inviting us to kind of you know um vet that like my availability to work with their organization and i said you know i've i've followed you guys and stuff for a long time uh and i've never got a, a spec scan so let me get a scan let me come in let me kind of see how you would work me up and let me just be a patient kind of get a sense of your, how you do what you do and I got a, I got a spec scan and the, the head, the medical director of one of the centers, um, he said, wow, I've seen about 14,000 brain scans and I've never seen one look as bad as yours function as well as yours. And I said, well, I, I guess that's good. <laughs> he said, well, it's clear that you've had a lot of injury and, and most of this were, were in these two frontal tracks. Right, where I broke my neck was on the top as an axial load. And I've had concussions on the side too. But to your point, soccer and my defensive position, I played center back. So I'm constantly heading the ball out of the way, taking these long, full volley punts from the other keeper at like 60, 70 yards straight out of the air. And when you look at the impact on the brain, <clears throat> if you get slugged in, in um, boxing, it's about, uh, I mean, variable rates. It's like 30 to 45 miles per hour impact on the brain. If you take a full volley um, punt from, say, like the other goalkeeper or, you know, 60, 70 yards, that's about 80 mm. miles per hour impact to the brain. So it's significantly more than even boxing. And I wasn't even tracking that way back in the day. And, and not many people were. But I played that position for about 25 years. So I had maybe 20,000 different times where my head was hitting the ball. And then when I saw the spec scan, it was like you just like, like if, if these two frontal tracks were eaten out from the inside, like Swiss cheese, but like a rat just kind of like mowed down these frontal tracks and 
it got my attention. And he said, um, well, it's obvious you've had a lot of trauma, but you seem to be functioning pretty well. So what are you doing? And I said, well, I just launched this. I think they had already known that. I just launched a concussion repair manual. And that's kind of what simulated the conversation in the first place. I said, I've, I've tried everything in that book for the last 15 years of treating, trying to treat post-concussive syndrome because nobody in neurology, at least that I was connected to at the time, had good answers. And allopathic neurology is historically very good in diagnostics and pretty lousy in therapeutics. Uh, broadly speaking, I know a lot of my neurology <laughs> colleagues would not appreciate that comment. Um, but it's also me calling to task the industry because I think we have a lot more um, tools in the kit that haven't yet been made available to the masses. Mm. And most insurance companies don't subsidize these kind of therapeutics, including psychedelic therapy, same thing for psychiatry. So I'm a pretty strong advocate and I kind of press on the industry to change our medical model such that um, we're not spending so much of our money in careless and mindless ways in other industries, like for example, the war machine, how much more benefit could we pulse into the medical field if so much of our GDP didn't go to the war machine? Especially and these are larger more, political More social, uh, soldiers dying now of suicide than combat. You have more, oh. more deaths from, in the US from self-inflicted wounds than, uh, and harm than we do from violent deaths so it's violent crime so it's it, yeah it's it is it's wild that flip that has happened in the last decade on both of those fronts and yet so little being spent on on where that uh the tragedy seems to be accelerating that little ding is the sound of cold hard digital invisible cash going right into your pocket and by pocket i mean your digital Shopify account that might be on your phone in your pocket. At least that's the case for us in Magic Mind. Shopify allows you to go from first sale to full scale, and it has for us. Magic Mind has one full-time employee, and we've gotten to $5 million in annualized sales using Shopify. Me, William, amazing GM, and Shopify. It is the no-brainer for any e-commerce stack that you've ever thought of. If you're, if you're selling online and you're running into issues left and right, Shopify is a solution. If you're thinking of selling online, it is the dream scenario of being able to get your first sale, scale to millions in sales. And we haven't done this yet, but when we do move into physical retail, when we move into physical shops, start building our own, you can actually go from online with Shopify to offline with Shopify and everything is in beautiful little dashboard on your phone. I love checking it. You can check it, you know, as you're going to sleep, you just open it up and see your exact sales for the day. You even see tips on how to improve conversion rates, improve your store. Shopify is literally, when I say it's the dream, I mean, it, it is the dream and we've got a special hookup for listeners. So wait for that in a sec. You can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. This is one of my favorite favorite parts about Shopify is it has this ecosystem of thousands of third-party apps, developers, and teams that are building awesome features for the Shopify ecosystem. So you're getting way more than just Shopify. You're getting thousands of, of applications built to refine the customer experience for 
all of your customers. We use probably eight or nine of these different apps that Shopify doesn't even build, but it's teams building for the Shopify ecosystem. And were we on a different platform, we just wouldn't have access to this thou these thousands of third-party applications to make magicmind.com so powerful. You gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting on conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash below the line, all lowercase, for a 14-day free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. And this is a unique offer for Below the Line. You're going to get something special when you sign up with that slash Below the Line. So make sure to enter that. It is not offered to everybody. So go to shopify.com slash Below the Line, all lowercase. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Below the Line, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash below the line. Today's episode is brought to you by Magic Mind. You've heard it on the podcast before. It is the single, it is my favorite thing about the morning is when I get to take my Magic Mind, 12 magical ingredients that get you into flow state. It is, as Forbes put it, Silicon Valley's new morning elixir for so many reasons. It is, uh, but for me, I'll just say the fact that I get dialed in, not amped up like an energy drink, but dialed into my work so quickly. It is basically just motivation, focus, energy, and de-stressing in a bottle. It's, it's really, truly magical. Go to magicmind.co, magicmind.co, enter promo code BTL for below the line, BTL, to get 20% off of your first order and see if it works for you. You can literally tweet, tweet at Magic Mind, say whatever you didn't like about it, and you get a free refund. It's it is so easy to get a refund if you do not dig it. So there's really no reason to not try it and see if it is magical for you. You can go to MagicMind.co/love just to see all of the public praise. Pete Holmes, the famous comedian, he doesn't stop tweeting about how magical Magic Mind is for him. Um, so you'll probably see that if you look it up on Twitter. But if you've never tried it, go order it. It's promo code BTL for below the line to get 20% off. And again, you get a free, re it's easy refund if you don't dig it. Magicmind.co and start making magic. Yeah, so we're, we're, I mean, your point's an excellent one. And we're seeing the, the full, not the full, we're seeing signs of how disrupted the cultural psyche is because of the accumulated trauma that hasn't been addressed. And that's transgenerational trauma. It's cultural trauma. It's individual trauma. It's part of our kind of opportunity now, particularly with the internet and all these different movements of bringing the shadow quote unquote into the light. And so, just to peel it back and then I'll give you the talking stick because I kind of feel like I've been hogging it for a while. No, as you um, should, you're the guest. <laughs> uh, he, uh, I think, I think this guy's name was uh, Doc Johnson. He said, um, so it's obvious you've been doing something good. What have you been doing? I said, well, I've tried all these things. Um, many of them were very helpful. Some of them weren't. Um, and everything that I found that was helpful, I put into this book. And with everything in that book, 
I still think the number one thing that I've done was ayahuasca. Mm. And he said, oh, I've been hearing about, and this was probably 10 years, no, this is maybe nine years ago now. He said, yeah, I've been hearing more and more about this. Tell me more. And so we got in this conversation about psychedelics. And sure enough, ayahuasca, cannabis, iboga, ketamine, uh, maybe even DMT. We don't have enough research there. Um, psilocybin, what I mean by DMT is like 5-MeO-DMT from like the Sonoran Desert Toad. Mm -hmm. Psilocybin is a DMT analog, 4-phosphoryoxal DMT. Ayahuasca is a DMT analog, NN-DMT. And then you have 5-MeO-DMT from like the toad and then from other plant species like Vilca, Yopo. So these DMT-based medicines, cannabis itself, ketamine, Iboga, Iboga is a very fascinating medicine. All of these medicines stimulate what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which means they stimulate new neuronal growth, neurogenesis, and neuroadaptation. And so do neurotropics, so do nootropics, so do many of the nootropics, not all of them, but so do many of the nootropics. So when you start stacking medicine work with nootropics, I mean, now you get like, you know, this is kind of Paul Stamets's classic stack with niacin, lion's mane, and psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Now you get this really like entourage effect. Some people know that term from cannabis research. You get like all these factors working in concert and in benefit towards a shared goal. So of peeling it kind of all the way back um, to your original question, like, you know, what were the things that kind of like shaped my, my trajectory in medicine? I'd say it was two primary twofold. And then a third, cause I, I was tracking your request to have three stories. <laughs> The two primary ones that bookended my medical career was when I broke C5 and then went into psychiatry and neurology. And then when I went through a separation, couldn't feel it, made a big prayer, wanted to work on opening up my like psychic space and emotional body. Then I was introduced to ayahuasca. So like the, the entire formality of my medical training was all the hardware sciences. And that was 12 years. And then since being introduced to ayahuasca over the last 15 years, it's been very much the soul-centered sciences, or maybe we might call those the inner sciences or the software sciences, the psychedelic therapies that open us up into the, the, the deeper aspects of ourselves, these transpersonal states. So when we have the opportunity to bring these hardware sciences and software sciences together, now we can really see the optimal expression of what neurology and psychiatry are meant to be in complement to one another brain sciences and mind sciences. And so I've had the just really beautiful privileged position to um, be a bit of a, uh, I was going to say renegade and that, that sounds a little egotistical. <laughs> um, but I suppose I've, it's, I've never been kind of one to be in the box, so to speak. So it was never, I was never really in the box, you know, that, that much, especially after I got out of all my medical training. And so, so many of my colleagues now, if they, and I mentor quite a number of colleagues, psychiatrists, neurologists, internal medicine docs, you know, people that are going through their kind of um, investigation of how to bring an allopathic Western trained medical model into its next evolved state, appreciating the right use of psychedelic therapies and how to do that. And therefore how to get out of the box, so to speak, and practice in um, more maybe transformational or transpersonal ways. So I've had the opportunity to, to be in that position and um, 
psychedelic medicine is here to stay. It's, it's not going anywhere. It's not a matter of if it's going to become legal, but how and when. And so our opportunity is to continue to evolve the field and, um, and per perfect. I mean, it's a constant. We'll, we'll never get to perfection. Um, you know, there's only one per perfect source of, you know, creation in the universe. And that's what spurred everything in the first place, whatever our concept of God is. But we continue to perfect the model and continue to, to, to polish the diamond and, and try and um, blend the science with the art. And especially as it relates to medicine work, there's an artful process of being able to understand which medicine to use for which person at which time, given everything else that they're doing. Mm. Just because we have a bunch of ingredients doesn't mean we throw everything into the pot and expect that it's going to create an awesome recipe. We have to understand the rubric of assessment and people's readiness to go through what I might call like level one, level two, and level three psychedelic experiences. And that's, that's where I get most excited about the potential for where we're going as a medical field. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it back over to you, is I, I really appreciate what you're saying as far as like the travesty of it is that we have so many veterans, so many civilians, so many people dying in the streets when these therapies are available, mm -hmm. they're here. We've already proven them safe, especially psilocybin has no LD50, right? You can, you can eat a trash bag of mushrooms and you'd vomit, but you, that's about it. I mean, I'm making a kind of a generalization here. Um, what is LD50? No, that's the lethal dose. Oh yeah. Lethal lethal dose exactly there's no lethal dose for psilocybin your body would reject it because it's a natural medicine natural medicines have we have built-in safeguards for that iboga of all the medicines i mentioned iboga is the one that can potentially be the most harmful because it can alter heart rate function but the other med cannabis another example of a very 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 safe medicine that is still not even legal medically in texas where i'm calling from right now mm -hmm. which is a fucking travesty and yet you, and can, the, the you can get a benzodiazepine uh, prescription online right. in 20 minutes. Right. 100%. And for and listeners, so, benzodiazepines, it's right after the opiate crisis, we're probably going to turn our eye to the benzodiazepine crisis of just mm -hmm. what is happening to so many individuals that get a prescription from a doctor in a white coat and think, okay, this is medicine. It has to be healthy and safe and yeah you'd be far better with uh, with a psychedelic that has all of the stigma in the world um negative stigma in the mm -hmm. world that you know that everyone around you would tell you is unsafe you'd be far better with with that than uh potentially than just getting started on a uh, a xanax prescription that then gives you tremors when you try to come off of it yeah yeah so you know you're you're bringing kind of the the ethics of medical care into the conversation um for me it's not ethical to sit on psilocybin and cannabis when we have br brothers and sisters dying in the street uh, my sister committed suicide well, my, one of my sisters my older sister on my dad's side committed suicide 10 years ago and that's why you and I are having this conversation now, because I had been working with ayahuasca for eight years up to uh, sort of an eight years ago, she died. So I, I was working with ayahuasca seven years 
uh, underground, just doing my own research, not not really telling anybody about it because uh, it wasn't really kind of above board back then. Uh, I was doing other work. I was running other centers, but I was just keeping that kind of part of my life quiet. And it happened really fast. Didn't see it. She was sober. She had been sober for 14 months. And then one night, don't know why, got a bottle of wine and shot herself. And it was just a fucking bomb that went off in our family system. And it was a call to action for me and a realization that um, I can't just play from the sidelines anymore. I need to be an educator and advocate to support, just do my small part in helping to move the field along, so to speak. Um, so it's, I, I get, it hits home when we start talking about the fact that there are people that lose their lives daily because these therapeutics are not available. So this is part of our tall task in the midst of such a dynamic time in human history, having these tools available and figuring out the right place for them, the right use for them, um, accelerating the regulatory evolution so that these medicines can be available more readily and um, consistently to everybody that needs them. Because even like ketamine, which is legal, most centers, it's still a fee-for-service model, still pay-out-of-pocket model. And as a result, so many people are can't opt in because they may not have that discretionary income. Mm. And so there also needs to be um, funding streams and uh, reimbursement models that support therapists and facilitators to offer these services. And for those that need these services the most to be able to opt in for them. Um, this is part of what we're doing with a nonprofit that I just launched called Thank You Life um, to be able to bridge clients with facilitators and support the funding stream uh, to allocate those uh, services and then match people um, that, that are provide that apply the financial yeah. support that, for those services. Yeah. Private donors, public donors, um, more and more seeing the need to kind of expand this part of the field and then track our data and show that not only do symptoms get better when somebody heals from a ketamine series or a psilocybin session or a series of sessions, not only do their symptoms resolve or get significantly better, but what does their life look like in their trajectory, six, 12 months, five years down the road? Oftentimes relationships are better. Life is better. They're, they're engaged in their Dharma, their service, their gift. Um, they're uh, experiencing, you know, what they're, what they're here to contribute to life because everybody's life is important. Everybody has a gift to share. And um, the, the extent of the transgenerational trauma is so uh, ripe. It's really coming up to the surface more and more. So I think it's, it's, it's no coincidence that the medicines are becoming more available while the trauma is becoming more acute. It's like this is the perfect merging. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what happens in most of the cool stories that we're most drawn to, you know, the hero and the heroine are going through this major tribulation and challenge. And then they find like the jewel or the map or the amulet or the divine intervention just at the right time, right, right when you're not sure if they're going to make it through. And, you know, we're, we, we're in that position in that precarious position where we're not quite sure that humanity is going to make it through. Yes. We have a lot of amazing technologies, but are we using those technologies to the fullest extent? And is there still massive existential threat in the, collective right now for sure 
-hmm. So that's where we find ourselves. So thank you for letting me, you know, kind of riff on that for a little while. And um, I certainly want to make this a bi-directional conversation and turn up, turn, <laughs> turn well, the talking stick back over. You are, you're the expert. So I really want to do a little, little of the talking and allow you to, to, to provide the expertise on these different topics. The, if people want to go deeper on the concussion side, actually people can, um, you know, most guests, you can't book time with them, um, but people can actually book time with you as a doctor. Is that right? Online, if they have questions about the concussion side of things, what would be that that resource? And then what would be maybe the, the free resource if they can't afford your time directly, but they, they think, you know what, there might be something there that I need to look into. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yes to all the things that you mentioned. I do have a small private practice, uh, the vast majority of which is uh, virtual at this point. Um, I'm involved in a number of different uh, projects and uh, clinics and kind of oversights. So I, I don't have a huge um, practice at this point, but I do have openings in as little as a few weeks because I want to keep my kind of hands in the dirt. Um, I do, uh, also desire to kind of not just be the bottleneck for people to receive services or support. Um, because like you said, not everybody can either, um, you know, find the time or even afford the opportunity, um, to work with, with a provider, um, in this kind of like, you know, transactional money kind of orientation. And that's part of what we're trying to do with Think You Life too, which is like, can we set up endowments or funding streams where, the, the therapist, the facilitator who has a, a set of skills or service or um, offering can do that with their compensation already being kind of like um, established and guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So that, and this is kind of what we're doing with crypto and, you know, decentralized financial systems where there's more of a bartering system or like maybe from Charles Eisenstein kind of respective sacred economics where we have more of a, a direct kind of um, connection and transfer of energy, essentially what it is. Um, so in order for me not to be the bottleneck, um, there's a couple of different ways that people can engage at least information around concussion recovery. So I wrote a book called the concussion repair manual. Um, there are a variety of different really good therapeutics, uh, outlined in that book. Um, that book I wrote and published about seven, uh, about six years ago. Yeah, about six years ago now. Um, so the, the information is pretty solid, but it's a little outdated because there's so many things that are new, like different stem cell lines. Uh, I don't even think I put anything on exosomes, not much on peptides. Um, if I had to point to like the biggest regenerative kind of orientation, I would say neuromodulation for the vast majority of people that looks like that could look like pulse electromagnetic field. That could look like transcranial magnetic stimulation. That could look like neurofeedback or something just called like direct current stimulation or alternating current stimulation. So all those frequency technologies, that nootropics, which we're going to talk to in, about, yeah, about a little bit, too. and then regenerative therapeutics, regenerative therapeutics being peptides, stem cells, exosomes. So all of that you know, there's a, there's been a lot of science in the last decade. Um, so some of that science is not necessarily, uh, the most up to date. So just kind of full disclosure. Um, so start with the concussion repair, repair manual, but continue to investigate beyond that. And then another program that I'm launching is the concussion repair protocol. Um, 
And that is a um, series of videos where I walk people through the understanding of diet, personal practices, sleep hygiene, stress management. Uh, and we go through a modulized kind of um, like coaching sequence in the series. Mm. Uh, we're just about to launch that again towards the, I think some, we're on slate for about the next three months. So this is what, June now, just June 1 now. So it should be in the fall. Um, and I, I think the URL on that's going to be concussion repair program. So those are a couple of options. Um, and then also, um, I would say to, to localize support with grassroots um, community-based organizations, because there's a lot of people appreciating now the residual impacts of concussion recovery. And there are a lot of local chapters of like TBI network support, um, concussion, uh, I think it's concussion care communities or something like that. Um, and then there are thankfully more and more people offering services um, where you might find a functional neurologist. Um, those tip, that's the, that's the profession where I found that they've had the best advanced training on neurotherapeutics, not just neurodiagnostics. Their I, diagnostics are amazing. Actually in that, too. in that area code, do you mind if, if you were at a grocery store and you saw the different types of doctors on a shelf and you were describing yeah. everybody and it sounds like you would, you just touched on functional neurologist, maybe being the, the best one, the one you should pick off the shelf. What for would, concussions for concussion repair? What would the different ones that people would even see on the, or let's say it's a dinner menu and that's what they should order, but they'd see, yeah. and you mentioned allopathic, you mentioned naturopathic, you mentioned functional. Do you mind giving a, just a, a few minute overview of just that, what that menu looks like today to probably a very confused customer? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, so functional neurologists typically are chiropractic docs that take advanced training in what's called functional neurology or like the specific set of diagnostic and therapeutics um, for assessing a particular challenged arena of the brain or the central nervous system. And then knowing how to use a series of diagnostic tests to not only identify it, but then to rehabilitate it. What are the exercises, therapeutic interventions, uh, the practices and protocols to put people through, which you just mentioned, somebody mentioned to your comedian friend doing like horizontal uh, fixed gaze exercises. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're kind of like fixed in one position and you're just moving your eyes back and forth. Right. He was um, blown away. He, that, he's like, I talk about this every chance I get because there might be someone out there that has this extreme debilitation that has yeah. this extremely simple solution that he experienced. Totally. And that's just one example like of rehabilitating the visual system. But not everybody's concussion presents visually. Some present auditorially, some, some proprioceptively, which means like balance, how you hold yourself in space. Um, some might be more sensorially, like how you experience your body or acute, acuteness or numbness or, you know, a variety of other things. So when I got introduced to functional neurology, I was really impressed with their diagnostics and even more impressed by the therapeutics. So that would be a subset of chiropractic medicine. My first true mentor was a chiropractor and really? um, I thought they just cracked necks and backs. 
There are four primary, I'm not an expert in chiropractic medicine by any means, but my understanding is, uh, and I haven't learned all the different like avenues of chiropractic, but my understanding is that there's four main schools of chiropractic medicine and they don't all agree with one another on like the best practices. So they don't even necessarily get along <laughs> and speak totally the same language or maybe they speak the same language, but they're, they're speaking a different story about how they're assessing a person's need. Now there certainly are chiropractors who are like crack them and stack them, right? They might see 50, 60 clients in a day. Mm -hmm. um, the, the mentor that I was working with at that time, he, genius, beautiful man, um, and was one of the most present skillful practitioners I'd ever worked with. And, um, and his, his clinic was sweet too, as a family run business, his, his daughter worked the front desk and his wife did the books. And, um, mm -hmm. it, it was just like that, that more of that pure feeling of what like an old school, small town doc would be. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm -hmm. I learned a lot about understanding the entire system from aspects of what we might, what I might now call body, mind, heart, and soul all aspects of self and how each of these interweave and the body might be an expression of what's happening psychologically or emotionally or at a soul level or a spiritual level. And we might need to intervene on the body because that might be the safest place to intervene. Or maybe it's like starting with the foundation, particularly if somebody's in chronic pain and he worked with a lot of people in chronic pain and also, we need to be able to have a system that looks at the causative factor. Otherwise, we're just treating the expression of the imbalance, but not the causative factor itself. That's the, that's the challenge with psychiatry. Psychiatry is a field that deals with symptoms, not cures, because we don't have a really good diagnostic uh, appreciation for getting to the root cause issues. So I learned a pretty cool i mean for me i kind of geek out on this stuff so it was cool to me <laughs> system from him and then some colleagues of his on being able to use applied kinesiology and like the myofascial system and how joints lock into strength-based kind of um restful positions or um weakened positions when they are stressed emotionally or with an experience that um takes them out of resonance, takes them out of like the center. So you might be able to test a particular joint on a particular meridian line and show that a particular organ system is the primary expression of a physical problem. So for example, if I have a headache, can I find the reflex point to be able to show that it's actually a digestive system disturbance? Hmm. Or it's a mineral imbalance. Is that or typically the, is that some often seen as as woo woo and and uh, for sure. Mo all of my allopathic colleagues would look at that and say, "Where did you learn that?" And oh, you, you learned that from a chiropractor. Well, they're a bunch of quacks. The allopathic field aggressively went after chiropractic medicine and naturopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine throughout the twentieth century and made all of those fields woo-woo mm. so as to be able to establish their dominance in the industry. 
And that was a very concerted, very effective, aggressive market position. Mm. And so under, uh, unfortunately, that kind of residual label has stuck. And some of my best mentors have been chiropractors, naturopaths, Chinese medicine docs, Ayurveda medicine docs. Um, I haven't, I haven't mentored with, but I learned from a number of really amazing osteopaths. So if you ask me like how to put the dinner menu together of these variety of fields, when I look at whole person care, I think of all of those fields of medicine before I think of allopathic medicine, allopathic, allopathic conventional, medicine. the conventional guy conventional or girl with the white Western coat. Exactly. I do not experience allopathic Western medicine to be a whole person model. It's not a holistic model. It's a reductionistic model. It's very good at reductionistic medicine. And that's not to say it doesn't have its place. Western medicine is freaking amazing for triage care and emergency care and acute care management. So when I broke my neck, I didn't go see my herbalist. I mean, I didn't mm -hmm. have an herbalist at the time, but <laughs> I didn't go get like Arnica as a homeopathic remedy. I, I probably should have done that while I was in transit in the ambulance to go get a, a halo screwed into my skull. That probably would have helped. <laughs> um, and last week when I got dental surgery, um, and I haven't had have dental surgery in a long time, but I had had a molar that was cracked and I'd heard about this dentist and they have like, you know, a several month waiting list, but I heard they were really good and I geek out on, okay, how, how good can a dentist be? So I waited for three months before I could get in there. And sure enough, they're freaking amazing because they were able to assess that I had these long standing uh, infections in my old wisdom tooth kind of canals. And it increases your likelihood of a uh, heart attack by 60% throughout your life course if you have these low-grade infections. Wow. Uh, and they're hard to see unless you know exactly what kind of x-ray to use and what to look for. So they did those kind of surgical excisions uh, and then packed it with ozone and platelet therapy to regenerate bone growth while they put in this really cool and sophisticated kind of like polymer um, to fuse the tooth back together versus having to put a crown on that's now an implant. Mm. So it's kind of like Kintsugi, like that Japanese clay pottery art. Yeah, with the gold in between. Exactly. Yeah. So they essentially put Kintsugi like polymer back into my tooth to, to glue it back together. Mm. And then before and after the surgery, I got reflexology and 25 grams of vitamin C. So I came out of that oh. feeling like a champ. I played played soccer the next day. I was eating the next day. I didn't really have any downside. My, my lady was like, wow, that's amazing. You didn't really seem to miss a step. And I'm sure it was because of all the things that they were doing around right. their care. It was just, just like, that's an example of a very expensive, <laughs> comparatively speaking, not to just price them out of the market, but comparatively speaking, maybe I shouldn't say very expensive, maybe Maybe if I was just to go get a crown by my regular corner store dentist, that might be like say X amount of money. And this place might be two and a half X that amount of money. Mm -hmm. So not hugely expensive, but more. And I couldn't get in for three months because they're that good. And 
they still do things like ozone therapy and platelet therapy that the rest of the dental board is going to say like, oh, there's no science for that. Well, there is, but it's just not exactly in the kind of like the reductionistic, maybe double line placebo control trial that you need to show benefit for, but we're whole people. Mm-hmm. And if you just have a reductionistic kind of orientation of one variable, you might be losing the entourage effect of efficacy of the others. Mm-hmm. So I, I went in that direction. So I just put that as an example of a holistic model and what I mean by a holistic model. So yes, if I'm on route to getting a halo screwed into my skull, maybe taking Arnica or doing some diaphragmatic breathing or having reflexology as the dude screwing this bolt into my skull. And I, you know, it's like all of these things can be used synergistically. We just have this old rickety model that hasn't evolved to the, the level of beauty and kind of an exalted position that it could hold. So when we look at whole system cares, whole person models, the ones that have stood the test of time predominantly are Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. Mm. They're both mm. 35 to 4,000 year old medical paradigms and maybe even older. And we might even get into that as it relates to some of the psychedelic therapies, it's like psilocybin and the tradition, peyote and the tradition, iboga and the tradition. Um, most of these medical fields of this kind of transpersonal indigenous psychedelic therapy don't have written lineage. So we're not exactly sure how far back it goes. So those whole person systems take into account all those aspects, body, mind, heart, and soul. So if I was to go back myself and learn anything differently, I would probably go into osteopathic medicine. Really? I had the most amazing osteopathic experience two months ago. Cool. here in in southern california i drove an hour and 15 minutes to see this osteopath that a friend of mine that was a and for listeners osteopath is um it is they are mds but you you know if you have lower back pain you're what? typically what's that they're, they're do's oh they're do's so the a, doctors so if, of osteopath yeah, but it's different than exactly. it's different than it's um, a little than uh it's different than mds MDs, but it's also it's not a chiropractor right so it's they're different than both so osteopaths you can osteopathic college of medicine is different from the allopathic western college of medicine so you go through a different four-year training but then you share advanced training in a given residency i okay so So yes that's right and it's not osteopaths there's they they know an orientation towards naturopathic medicine, chiropractic medicine, and allopathic medicine. Mm. It's kind of a fusion of all of those, which is why, to your point, they, they have this really in, incredible model. Right, yeah, so it incorporates the allopathic understanding versus, from my understanding, versus a chiropractor that could get the training, get the certificate, and not have the allopathic um, experience and education. So it's they are very well-trained, but uh, the... The experience, I thought it was kind of on the chiropractor side of things. I was like, I don't know. I think I should see a doctor in, you know, the typical white coat with the x-rays or MRIs or whatever. You know, they, they want to put me under. It's got to be a big machine for it to be, you know, really valuable um, insights, right? And, but my friend who's a, a, a quite literal uh, rocket scientist, she is not woo-woo at all. 
and very logical, rational, hyper-rational individual, actually. So that's what really sold it for me. She was like, just go see her. She cured two issues that I had for 10 years. Just go see her. I was like, okay, nothing to lose. And it was the lightest touch, but in seven sessions, cured my lower back pain that I've been talking to you about for two and a half years. And it was an osteopath, wow. unbelievable, in Costa Mesa, Southern California, if, if anyone wants to uh, shoot me in a, a note, because I'll recommend her all day long. Um, but um, the, I'll put the link even in all of the links. Jake, write down all of the links that we're dropping in this episode, and we'll mention them. This episode is also brought to you by Chargebee. Imagine this. You're launching your subscription product, and you need to invoice your first few customers. You integrate with a payment gateway. Write some code to support recurring billing, and you start charging things up. Stuff seems to work until you need to create tax-compliant invoices or set up flexible trials and run pricing experiments. Yikes. Or integrate with more than one gateway. Yoinks! Billing needs grow as business needs grow. Every line of code you write for your billing system contributes to the spaghetti nightmare that will keep you away from your core product. Don't do that. Chargebee is here to help. We replace in-house billing systems and spreadsheets by giving teams the ability to set up subscription plans and trials, run pricing experiments at scale, analyze accurate subscription analytics, accept multiple payment methods, and much, much more right out of the box. Chargebee works with global payment gateways like Stripe, Braintree, PayPal, everybody, and integrates with essential tools like HubSpot, Metrics, Xero, QuickBooks, Salesforce, and much more. Chargebee, Chargebee, Chargebee. The journey to the first million is often the hardest. To help you get there faster, we're offering free access to Chargebee's Rise Plan. This offer is valid until you hit your first million dollar million dollars in revenue. This is a meeting that goes back two weeks ago. Me and the CEO, we, I said, this isn't enough at 500K. This isn't enough at 750. This offer should be valid until customers hit their first million in revenue. And that's how we came to this decision. So you don't have to worry about billing and subscription management in the marathon that is running your business. To avail the services Love that. I'm going to start using that phrase as often as possible to avail the services. Sign up for a Chargebee account with the link in our show notes for chargebee.com slash partners. Sign up and enter your details with the coupon code BTL for below the line BTL. And then you complete your sign up within seconds. Super easy. Charge B rocks. But yeah, so you keep going in this, this menu. I have other things that I, want, that I want to ask you about, but I want you to round out this, this menu of options that it's, it's, you, you know, there is more than just the same cheeseburger that three generations of your family have going to, you know, going to see that, that general practitioner. You have mm-hmm. naturopath, osteopath, allopath. Keep going in this, in this realm of just outlining the menu for people when it comes to health Yeah. So you mentioned osteopath, naturopath, chiropractic. We spoke about Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. Those are very different systems. Um, Those are more preventative. At, is that at least Ayurvedic is more preventative uh, than just 
um, acute care, right? They can address, yeah, they can address acute care issues, especially, you know, Ayurvedic medicine is very good when you think of things like a constitutional medicine, um, like looking at a person's profile and how they're just made up skeletally, emotionally, um, and uh, mentally. So you have these primary different, what are called doshas or kind of constitutional types, and therefore your constitutional remedies might be associated with your particular profile. Um, it's very oriented towards detoxification. Um, and, and that might look like um, different practices of cleansing the body and opening up what are called the amunctories or the detox channels. Um, oftentimes the practices of Ayurvedic medicine look very different. Like, uh, we, in, in the Western kind of, particularly in the United States, we have this butt phobia. <laughs> People don't like to stop to talk about like enemas or suppositories or like, that's a bit of like a no fly zone. But historically, many of the more kind of holistic orientations to medicine included using ways to clean out the colon, i.e. enemas or colonics, uh, as well as the administration of medicines rectally versus orally because you get better absorption. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of feedback that you're probably going to get in regards to my mentioning um, the detoxification side of things. But it's interesting. I've, I've, um, been a part of detoxification clinics. I've run detoxification clinics. I've um, run 10 years of uh, detoxification retreats where we were doing fasting, juice fasting, lymphatic cleansing, um, colon hydrotherapy, and to see people's transformation. That was without medicine work. And to see people's transformation in only seven days was remarkable. Um, I believe it know, is. Classically. That's, that's not, that's, I don't think that's, to a field for what listeners of this podcast are, I mean, especially the Silicon Valley founder um, and startup founder demographic, they, anything that's over 10, you know, that's been done the same way for over a decade is probably obsolete, not taking in new information. And when it comes to, mm. especially like microbiome um, leaps of, of scientific feats that are, that are happening right now, it's, there is that whole part of the world of our anatomical world that we pay no attention to that we probably should. I re in fact, I remember there's a Indian sage Ramatirtha who's, who's just a lion within, within um, Advaita Vedanta. And one of his famous quotes, I think is goes along the lines of a good diet and good digestion is halfway to godliness. And just mm. digestion is not something that is like an, you know, heartburn at night and you take a, a pill for it and it's, and it's a footnote on your life. God, it's a good digestion is, is pretty core to everything that you're doing or aiming to do. hundred percent. And it can start with as little as uh, a one day juice feast, right? Or some kind of liquid feast or bone broths and then extend it to two days and extend it to three days and then put in, you know, while you're just taking in liquids, do coffee enemas once a day. Coffee you enemas? You boil out the what? coffee. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. So you, you boil out the coffee for like 20 minutes so that you don't have the caffeine spike. Okay. 
Okay. But and you use only the highest quality, not like Folgers, right? No offense to Folgers, but it's usually laced with a lot of pesticides and herbicides. So you use like Purity Coffee is one of the cleanest that I know of on the market. Uh, they test it for all of the shit that you don't want in it. Plus they test it for the phytonutrient profile. And um, a coffee enema, coffee is really good at decongesting the liver and the portal circulation from the colon, um, the circulatory system called the portal circulation is the direct path to the liver. So anything you put in rectally or into the colon, uh, like, you know, from the bottom up, so to speak, is going to have more direct access to the liver. So to be able to hold that in and to dump and essentially decongest the liver that's where a lot of people's toxicity resides because the, the liver is this massive filter organism that's uh, a filter organ that is constantly working to detox our system we have these major different detox channels kidneys liver lymphatic system um, sweat skin itself um, kidneys um, and and, and those are kind of the main ones. And then there's some secondary um, detox channels as well. But if we just use those as kind of the primaries, the the two big filter organs are um, the liver and the kidneys. The liver is actually not an end organ. Like kidneys are end organs. Like you don't have circulation through, you know, kind of like all the way through the tissue space. Um, whereas with li the liver you do. So when you when you drop in something that's so decongestive, turmeric is decongestive, apple cider vinegar is de decongestive. There, there are other ways to decongest the liver. Like a good, a good drink in the morning is apple cider vinegar, turmeric, and a little lemon juice in warm water. Mm. And drink a liter of that. If, for a small person, maybe a half a liter. But for a bigger person, drink a liter of that before you do anything else. Right? Because that's going to decongest the liver straight away, start your day that way before you put a whole bunch of food in there or toxify in some kind of capacity. I hadn't heard These you talk about that before. What, say the, the recipe yeah. again. Uh, warm water, apple cider vinegar, turmeric, and lemon juice. How much of each? Uh, about, say if you were going to do a liter, I might do a half an ounce of apple cider vinegar, a half a lemon, and a teaspoon of turmeric. Hmm. Now, true turmeric is activated by black pepper. So, you know, if you have more of like a well-rounded, and they have these different Ayurvedic recipes to take first thing in the morning. Could you take, um, could you take a magic mind with the apple cider vinegar or with the other ingredients potentially get in the way of, of they, what the apple they, cider vinegar is, is aiming to do and the turmeric? Yeah, the apple cider vinegar and the magic mind wouldn't have any um, negative kind of overlap. But basically what you're doing is if you do that, well, it's funny, you and I haven't talked about this much. I mean, we, our conversations always go in a variety of different contexts. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the Tesseract and we just pick a wormhole and we go down right. that one. Right. <laughs> so we were destined at some point to have this conversation too. If, if you did that digestive drink, and it's not really even a digestive drink, it's more of a lymphatic cleaner. And it also works secondary on the, on the liver. Um, if you started with that drink and say, Say a liter of water is too much for people. I mean, most people are dehydrated, so start there. And then drink it over the course of an hour. Because if you just drink a liter straight, it it's kind of like a flood. It won't most of it won't get absorbed. So sip it over the course of say a half hour. Do a half a liter. 
and, and then cut in half all those amounts. Do a quarter ounce of apple cider vinegar or maybe a tablespoon, half a lemon, maybe a quarter lemon, um, and a half a teaspoon of turmeric. So do that, drink it over the course of a half hour, and then a half hour later, have a magic mind. And you're gonna have about a 50%, eh, maybe somewhere between 30 and 50% increased efficacy mm. of the magic mind. How come? Because what you've done is you've just now primed your system for increasing its digestive absorption capacity. Mm. Because that's what apple cider vinegar would do. So like many people would use apple cider vinegar before meals to stimulate Agni or the digestive fire mm. and, and increase the digestive system's kind of readiness to absorb and receive a big meal. Okay, so we mentioned Magic Mind, and and without this being a commercial for Magic Mind, but you helping with the formulation and being perhaps the leading expert on nootropics out there, walk walk listeners through that have never, maybe they've heard the commercials on the podcast, but they've never really considered nootropics as, as part of their morning regimen. Why is that an area that's so fascinating to you and, and obviously to me, but you as as the actual scientific expert in the room, uh, walk us through what they are and why they're so fascinating to you. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think we go through these experiences in life to train us <laughs> for our dharma and our service. Um, so for me, the entry into medicine was literally a head injury. I'd had a few head injuries before that, but I mentioned the one where I broke my neck. And, and then a, a bat, that wasn't even the worst one. The worst one was uh, the one after that where I got turned upside down in a snowboard park, put an eight inch crack in the back of my helmet um, and really started having bad post-concussive syndrome. And at that point I knew I needed to find solutions because the solution, because how it expresses, I couldn't think straight. I had brain fog. I started having depression. Cause I was just like, so like low, like low energy, like the, the, <laughs> the light bulb on the rheostat just got turned to like 10%. Mm. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to continue to function and, and like serve this way. Um, and the biggest expression beyond executive function was narcolepsy where I started having these sleep attacks and drop attacks. And, um, I knew that wasn't sustainable. So the solution was to put me on Adderall, Silert, Ritalin. Um, so Adderall and Ritalin are the most well-known. The one that was recommended to me was Silert, so kind of a cousin of uh, Ritalin. It does essentially the same thing uh, neurochemically. And you know, Adderall is essentially cocaine and Ritalin is essentially speed. Um, uh, sorry, the other way around. Ritalin is essentially cocaine and Adderall is essentially uh, methamphetamine. Um, neurochemically, how they work, uh, you know, they're, they're more higher pharmaceutical purity and potency for sure. But neurochemically, they're very similar to those stimulants. Mm. And they work. Silent was amazing. Like, wow, that my brain felt like it turned on. And after three years, I think of being on Silent, I realized like, well, there's no end game for my prescriber. He's just going to have me on Silent forever. And there was no there was no way that the neurolo neurology field this was 20 years ago had any solutions to treat the post concussive syndrome so for me i just had to figure it out 
and nootropics were one of the things that I tried on and worked. Um, to be fair, um, I haven't found anything that has worked as well as Magic Mind. Um, really? I'm, that's a, I'm, that's, I'm that is a tall, yeah, that's a huge statement. Um, and, and again, yeah. I do not want, you do not need to blow smoke my direction, yeah. but, um, but that, why do you, why do you say that? Um, because of how I only, to be honest, I only take a third magic mind because if I take any more, I'm just way wired. Mm. Uh, I didn't, I just, I tend to be pretty sensitive neurologically and, and psychologically and maybe psychically at this point. And mm. I've been in, you know, a whole, a, a pretty <laughs> fair number of different medicine experiences that have kind of opened the, the gates and the doors. So I typically don't need as much, so to speak of like, um, either a pharmaceutical or a neurochemical intervention. Mm. Um, so I, I tend to, to, to ramp down the dose. Um, there are other products on the market that I like. Uh, I've been on, I've been involved with a company named on it for a long time. I think, you know, them and Alpha they, Brain, they have a sure, company. Yeah. Alpha brain's good. Um, qualia from neurohacker collective is good. Um, I have different experiences with all of those. Mm -hmm. And the one that kind of feels most performance oriented is magic mind. The one that feel, and, and I can say how, like how the others might feel a little bit complimentary, like alpha brain lands a little bit deeper kind of, you know, in my system, it may give me more energy here. Whereas magic mind gives me more energy here. Mm -hmm. Um, Qualia has so many different ingredients. It has like, you know, 50 or so different ingredients and there's a massive entourage effect. I tend to be more of a purist. So I like, I just, I particularly like simple and, and kind of efficient protocols. So that's just a personal preference. Mm -hmm. And so when I started looking into all the different nootropics and for a while, I was just toggling these things together. And then Alpha Brain was the first complimentary formula that I found about 10 years ago when I started working with that company because I became really good friends with um, the founder. Then I just, that was kind of my go-to. It was easy to travel with and it was a slim kind of formula and it works really well. Uh, didn't seem to have any side effects and all of that. So I just got kind of primed to be in the field of nootropics, mostly out of a personal crisis and experience. Whereas I know a lot of docs who are like geniuses in immunology because they had an immunological kind right. of entry into medicine or, or somebody else might've had like a, a hormonal dysregulation because of being, you know, uh, adrenally taxed over so long. And then they kind of had to get into restorative medicine that way. So mm -hmm. we all have these kind of like doorways in, and, um, I love geeking out on the hardware side and I also love plants. And I just love getting to know the aspect and the, the, the integrity of the plants themselves. And I love magic mind too, because it's, it's one of the more elegant formulas and it's one of the more heavily plant-based formulas. And so when I was in herbal medicine and herbology, it was a joy for me to get the raw ingredients mm -hmm. and to blend them into particular uh, profiles of constitutional remedies and make decoctions and uh, alcohol tinctures and 
then work with different ratios of efficacy and concentrations, and then to see just what that one medicine does. And then like a Chinese medicine perspective, when you have like the, the king and queen kind of urban agents, and then you have the secondary profiles, and then you have the harmonizers. Right. right? And that's what it that feels was a whole, like. That was, a, it was, that was a whole world for, for me as well of just you, you grow up and you think like a pill that is going to have an effect is ibuprofen. It's one hero ingredient uh, or, or it's a vitamin and it's like vitamin C. That's the hero ingredient. But then when it gets into cognition, then... And, and the goal being flow state, it was this beautiful kind of uh, entourage and, and a really amazing cast and, and crew of characters that a tiny bit of this amplifies that. And you might have a hero mm. ingredient, but its best friend uh, will make it that much more of, of an impact uh, or that much more impactful for you. So out of the... The ingredients in Magic Mind or nootropics in general, um, what are some of those those herbs, um, plant-based compounds that, that come to mind where you're like, man, I love that this drink has this, or I love that it could be alpha brain. But what are those that come to mind and how do they work for listeners that have no idea what we're talking about right now and think, okay, energy is coffee or a Red Bull? Yeah, well, thankfully, we have other options besides just Red Bull and coffee, right? <laughs> thankfully. Uh, and, and if I was going to think about like how to kind of like compartmentalize or categorize some of these, uh, I, I might think of like the adaptogens, right? Classically, rhodiola and cordyceps. I love the experience of rhodiola. Uh, cordyceps and ashwagandha, right? They're all different. Ashwagandha is a little bit more feminine. It's a bit more immunologically based. Cordyceps, rhodiola, they're more performance based. Um, there's more of a, like a yang energy balanced with the yin energy. Mm. Um, so if we just have a yang kind of energetic profile medicine, it's easy to just stand on the gas pedal. And I'm used to standing on the gas pedal and that only works for so freaking long. Like caffeine or something. And yeah, caffeine's a yang medicine. And it's a good medicine. Coffee's an amazing food. Coffee is phenomenal for the brain. It is a brain like jet fuel. Mm -hmm. um, caffeine too, matcha too. I mean, we might as well just say like caffeine is that kind of jet fuel for the brain. Um, Coffee is beautiful as a medicine and a food. The challenge is it's fairly acidic. It's usually laced with a lot of phytochemicals and herbicides and pesticides. Um, it's taxing on the adrenals because it's such a cortisol flood, especially if we get normalized to high doses. Mm. And then we have to use that to get up the next day and kind of like, you know, do the grind again. Mm -hmm. um, it's seductive to lean on coffee because it works so freaking well. You talked about benzos before. Well, benzos are the counterpart to coffee. They work so freaking well. They work fast. Mm -hmm. Your system notices it. It's easy to get addicted to it. And you have a withdrawal if you don't keep using it. Right. Whereas like matcha and green tea and, you know, Andy Weil is probably better to speak on matcha than I am. He's such a genius on it. He's a genius in many things. I totally look up to that dude. Well, you both um, are, are, it's amazing to have you both as, as anchors of our scientific advisory board. But yeah, huge matcha fan. Yeah, huge matcha fan, right? And it has so many phytochemicals that are really supportive 
um, to round out that kind of entourage effect. Yes, it's got caffeine, but it also has theanine in there that softens the caffeine a bit. Um, and there's not that much caffeine in Magic Mind in the first place. I think there's only like you know maybe 30, 40 milligrams. That's right, yeah. And that's a manageable dose. Now, when you put all the nootropics in there, now you've got energy. Caffeine will give you energy. So will rhodiola. Rhodiola, so will um, some of the other kind of entourage honey to an effect because you've got like you know some calories in there with sugar but they're natural sugars and when you add natural sugar to a formula then the body receives it as food and you get better uptake i remember you right? telling me it was pretty uh formative of you telling me adding a little bit of sugar adding a little honey um and that was part of the reason that we added it it wasn't just uh the flavor but you're saying that it and and i just took your word at gospel so do you mind explaining that a little bit more of why a little bit of something like a sugar will help with with the absorption of everything else when typically we we think of it as like oh that's additive and probably not necessary yeah yeah maybe i was first turned <laughs> turned on to that in mary poppins when she says a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down and that's probably because of a taste profile most good medicines are bitter mm. and it's because of how they interact and work in the body and most people don't like really strong bitter taste. So if you have a sweet, then it cuts the bitter and then you have more likelihood that people are gonna take it orally, unless you put it in a capsule and people don't really taste it. Mm -hmm. um, but when you just look at things nutritionally as well, um, the body receives calories, especially if they're good clean calories. Um, it uptakes them readily and uses the cell as, use, the cells use, use that calorie as energy input. Mm -hmm. and it, and then build ATP and you get energy output. Um, and so if you have a formula that has um, like a, a natural, cohesive, organic, and kind of like, uh, maybe we could say also beautiful, so to speak, caloric profile, like a natural honey would be, versus like a polyunsaturated, you know, uh, trans fat, mm -hmm. you know, or something that's really toxic to the system. You look at cells energetically and biologically and on a, you know, under a dark filled microscope, everything moves away from toxicity and towards nutrition. Really? We do cellularly, we do globally, like we move towards love, that's nutrition. We move away from something that's, that's, you know, quote unquote, disgusting or abhorrent, or I mean, not everybody, some people have a, like an orientation and a curiosity for that. But the, the, like anything that's going to significantly injure the system, we move away from that reflexively. And that includes toxicity. Um, so taking, taking like the, you know, personal preferences out of the kind of equation, things that are going to injure the system, move away from it's, it's evolutionarily advantageous. We would need to do that. Otherwise we wouldn't have gotten this far. Mm. And so sugar can be something similar, like fruit sugar is amazing. Fruit's amazing. Still sugar. Honey's amazing. Still sugar. If you and all medicine has its sweet spot, right? If you don't use enough, there's no effect. If you use too much, it's poison. So use too much sugar becomes poison. Use too much fruit, it feeds bacterial overgrowth. Or if you have a mold exposure, then now it might kind of like kick in that sensitivity to mold or candida. Um, light has the same kind of like profile. Use too much, now you get either sunburn or long-term cancer profile. So. Sugar just has this kind of like nice, particularly rounding, harm, harmonizing effect. Mm. Some other herbs like licorice is a classic harmonizer. 
uh, Shizandra is a classic carbonizer. And so when I think of like stable and sturdy uh, profiles and, and medicines like turmeric, turmeric is a solid stabilizing kind of grounding force, great anti-inflammatory. Uh, and some of the more, and it kind of like solidifies some of the more performance oriented medicines like, like Bacopa is a bit more of a, you know, performance oriented memory agent. Um, and then uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's phosphatidylserine, which which isn't uh, natural medicine in the first place, right? So you're now now we're working with a sophisticated formula that has not only organic ingredients, it has more like synthesized, um, like uh, lab derived and kind of um, more um, accentuated and expressed specific uh, molecular profiles. Now, yes, lecithin is an example of something that organically has uh, phosphatidylcholine and serine and it has those phosphatidyl those fats those fatty acids really i didn't know um, i didn't know it had that in there naturally unless mm -hmm. yeah but it's not necessary i mean you would have to like many of these medicines if you find the natural source you'd have to have so much of the natural source in order to get the ingredient kind of like milligram dose of efficacy mm-hmm um, right. So if we were using, uh, like, um, I wanted to say something like around the, like, like mineral profile of some like saltwater solutions, um, like Polarman's is an example. There's a, there's a bunch on the, on the market, but like if you mm -hmm. use, um, like a concentrated mineral support in order to, cause many people run with a low mineral profile or demineralized that's some of the stripping that can happen with too much coffee is it it can lead to demineral demineralization over time right. and so some people it may be helpful particularly if you're doing a lot of sauna therapy like the quinton q i q u i n t o n the quinton formula is like essentially c plasma mm -hmm. it's very very similar um osmolarity and osmolality to like blood plasma so you can replenish with um uh, these kind of mint concentrated mineral formulas. If if we're bleeding out and sweating out and getting out when a lot was, of minerals, we need. When to I was drinking supply. six, seven cups of coffee a day, and that led to my trip to the ER, and and ultimately um, the heart condition that led to formulating Magic Wine. It was actually I had all these aches and pains and had no idea one that it was um, I was drinking coffee instead of water. Obviously, going to have a dehydrating effect, but also more importantly, I had no idea that it was depleting my magnesium. That I learned later uh -huh. by a doctor just hypothesizing, you know, all that coffee um, might be depleting your magnesium. And I probably didn't, I didn't pay attention to that at all until I learned how foundational magnesium is to 800 different, um, you know, 800 different processes within the body, but very important for muscle relaxation. So yes, it, yeah. that depletion, I just had no, no clue the tax on the system. Um, but like you said, yeah. too much of something being a poison. Yeah. And, 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 and therefore we can see like, okay, if we can concentrate the mineral formula, then you don't necessarily have to drink two liters of water mm. or I was going to, I wanted to say like, you know, two gallons of water. I mean, most people, if they're sweating a lot and they're in a really hot kind of climate might need three liters or so of water a day, but you know, two gallons is a lot to try and remineralize. So if you take a concentrated saltwater solution, then now you don't need to drink as much fluid to remineralize. 
So it's the same kind of thing with some of the plant and phytonutrient kind of profiles or some extracts where you need a bit of a more concentrated formula. So yeah, all of that to say is um, there's one of the reasons that I like Magic Mind because it's still it's only a dozen or so ingredients and they're all um, you know formulated in a way that that has efficacy. There's no fluff in there. Um, it has a really strong performance effect and there's no downside uh, to if you stopped. Like mm -hmm. if you were, you know, using Magic Mind for a couple of weeks and then you forgot it and you stopped, there's typically no rebound. Yeah, there's withdrawal. a, a uh, this pro surfer, this amazing pro surfer uh, that I love who's trying uh, Magic Mind asked me today um, if it's addictive. And I was like, I? yeah, I said, besides the caffeine, um, there's nothing in the, the formula that's addictive and the caffeine in the matcha, which is also in, in everything else that, uh, that he's drinking each morning. Um, but besides the caffeine, it's, there's nothing addictive in by, by design. Um, I wanted it to be to where you're feeling better on day 70 than day seven, better on day seven than day one, not to where like coffee, you build up a tolerance within 30 days and you're really just maintaining on day 38 or day 40, but you're actually still getting great effects and not building a tolerance. The other thing that I love mentioning um, and then we will get off of magic wine is that something like ashwagandha has shown some properties of reverse tolerance where you need less of it over time. And instead of needing more like caffeine to get the same effect, needing less uh, of that over time. And I don't know if you've come across that, but that's been one of my favorite aspects of, of a compound like ashwagandha. If you can get the same efficacy with less. So was, maybe that's why you only need a third of, of a bottle each morning. Um, and feel great, but it's that that blew my mind that that was even a, a thing reverse tolerance. Yeah, yeah, you can get sensitized, which um, doesn't mean desensitized. It just means like you're uh, it's built up so much in your system that now you need less mm. to kind of like continue to top off the the experience. The last question that I have for you, I know we're running running up on uh, me exhausting your time. But the, the last thing that I would love to end on, Dan, is what does the future of, of this is such a big question, but I know that even two minutes of you trying to answer will be uh, illustrative for, for a feeble mind like mine. But what, it, what does the future of healthcare look like 10 years from now? It's 2032. And what does a 25-year-old a patient that is dealing with, let's say, depression, or dealing with uh, chronic pain, what does their treatment look like mm -hmm. in an ideal world? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I can tell you what I think it's gonna look like and what I would prefer to, it to look like, and then both of those could certainly be wrong. <laughs> Please. Because we don't have the eight ball, so to speak. Um, I think it's going to get into more and more uh, interventional testing, more uh, genetic profiling, more um, early interventions to try and maximize people's, um, uh, maybe we could say genetic expression or limit the potential for them to express something that would be less desirable like cancer. Um, with those genetic interventions, I think there's going to be a shadow aspect to that which is now you're going to have people trying to chase immortality even more. Mm. Uh, I'm not mm. a fan of the field of anti-aging medicine. 
because you're talking about something. It's it's creating a war with nature. I couldn't agree more. It's it it seems like it's it one it is it is a never ending battle. So you're basically saying I'm gonna I'm gonna straighten a dog's tail that every ounce of the nature within that equation is wanting a uh, an unstraight tail. It's pushing back a wave, and and it just also feels like it's the wrong mentality. It's it's it one. It, Perhaps one of the greatest gifts of life is the fact that there's death, is the fact that you and I are not living here with nine generations of elders telling us uh, what we should be doing. But, but there's also just, as Steve Jobs uh, talked about, it's, it's great. It's uh, the universe's greatest change agent. It, it is a feature to give people, other people the main stage than for us to live for a thousand years, which is for listeners... I think that's ridiculous. There are some significant, heavy-hitting entrepreneurs with that exact articulated aim. A hundred percent. Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, it's the byproduct of a culture that fears death and um, is very opulent and privileged. Uh, we have so much abundance, and we're mismanaging so much of it. There's so much income inequality. There's so much um, uh, unnecessary suffering. And we have this uh, you know, th- throwaway culture where our, our, like this is a Michael Mead term, our, um, our advanced age uh, kind of grandmothers and grandfathers grandfathers in our communities they become olders but they don't become elders Mm. so people that get old we tend to by and large get shunted to the nursing home Mm -hmm. and do not have the experience of ongoing generative capacity and ongoing need in the society so if our if we don't have as much value for our, our olders um, and there's no kind of like recognition of their importance in our community as elders. And we have this massive fear of death because we don't have a consistent availability to honor everybody's different faith kind of expression. Um, and we don't have a culture that really even particularly in medical, in the medical industry has an understanding or an appreciation for faith. Or, or a concept of soul. So now we don't really have a shared conversation about even what happens after we shed this monkey suit. And so there's a variety of reasons that we have a culture that's fearing death, that has massive um, uh, like discretionary income in the medical field that's being mismanaged. I think it's something like 85% of all the healthcare dollars go to the last nine to, 20, nine to 12 months of people's lives. I've heard something similar, yeah. That is a massive amount. And so no no wonder we're pretty lousy at preventative care. And we're pretty lousy at chronic care management because we don't have good solutions. But we have this massive fear of death and we have a lot of opulence. So let's try and eke out another few months and maybe a few years. But to what degree of quality is being 
um, leveraged um, for quantity, right? Mm -hmm. So we might be living longer, but are we living better? And so given all of that, um, we've got this field of anti-aging medicine that makes a huge part of nature wrong, like makes aging wrong. And I just think it's, it's, um, it's another sign of a really uh, adolescent culture. We don't have, I mean, the majority of people in major positions of decision-making uh, politically, um, medically, in, in all industries um, are uninitiated adults. We don't have rites of passage. We don't have, we don't have the consistent experience of people in a mature position. And that means a position of integrity acting in those powerful decision-making positions. Um, so given all of that, um, I think there's going to need to continue to be a significant reckoning. And I think it's going to get more out of balance, so to speak, before it gets, comes back into harmony. I think that's kind of part of the reckoning, what needs to happen. Um, what do you mean by and, that? What, I guess walk me through what that looks like to that point in 10 years or this vague future where you, you have well, this preferred industries don't, industries don't change voluntarily until they're forced to, particularly because most of those industries are managed by people that would rather keep them in their existing expression. So mm -hmm. like, let's, let's talk about the legal system, the privatized prison system. I mean, the fact that we incarcerate more people per capita than any other country in the world easily. And that privatized prison system goes to benefit very few people. It's not a rehabilitative system. Very few people go through the privatized prison system rehabilitated and made better on the other side. Mm. And so is that going to change on its own? No. It'll have to change from an outside force. And that's part of the evolution. And, and you know, all systems change that way. But big systems tend to train, change slowly until there's a critical kind of like crisis. And then more change might be motivated. So if, if I look at all the major industries, every, to me, everything's upside down from its ideal expression. Educational system, horrible compared to what it could be. It's not a it's not an individualized model. It's a one size fits all model. It's um, now becoming more and more of a polarized political landscape. Um, we don't even have basic education made available to all people. Not to mention advanced education, like really excellent basic education. Uh, and I'm not talking about like necessarily like socialist. Um, Kind of values. I don't. It doesn't need to get to be a political conversation. I don't. Um, I have some orientation and potentially ideas to how it's going to change, but that's not the nature of our conversation. The nature of our conversation is just the fact that a, uh, if we can see like agricultural system, how we grow food, terrible. These huge monocrop cultures that are depleting soil and the like nutrient profile of the soil mm -hmm. that's going to change um okay political 
the political arena is filled with a bunch of people who are oriented to their own personal interests and typically act out uh, very little integrity. I know those are there are exceptions for sure. Uh, the medical organization we we spend a lot of time talking about medicine. Medicine globally and well, not globally so much, but at least Western allopathic medicine is still a very reductionistic medical system. Um, that's going to continue to get threatened, particularly with as many people as likely to experience dementia and neurodegeneration. Um, if we looked at, I mean, right, so we can just kind of keep going down the list of all these different huge systems in our society that are going to need to go through a pretty significant sizable change in order to be in a, a more equitable, sustainable, harmonious expression. I'm not saying I have I, uh, answers to all of those situations, those kind of scenarios. This is where ideally we sit down and we ask the hard questions and, and are willing to make the decisions on behalf of the collective that might mean that um, we need to invest in some social systems that support people uh, to be at least able to access their own healing through things like my, my, the, the way I'm playing, kind of playing this whole game in any of those systems I mentioned, my focus is medicine and within medicine, my focus is psychedelic therapy. It's very clear. I can point to that. That's a lead change agent. It changes consciousness very efficiently. Now you have to hold that in a therapeutic container. You have to be able to make sure people are ready to have a transpersonal experience, hold them through that process of initiation and transformation in a good way. Um, and then help them integrate that back into their lives in a good way. When that happens, it's very consistent that you have a pretty significantly net positive experience. And then once, once people go through that, they want to give back because now their lives are more enriched and their souls are more online. Right. And, and some people are fighting fight in, in regenerative agriculture and um, bringing consciousness into the legal system and restorative justice and into the political system and um, looking at areas and, and kind of different expressions like dynamic governance and right. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's happening. Uh, and I don't think we're, I don't even think we're going to see the full expression of any of these industries being consistently healed towards where it could go in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. I think this is, I think this is a multi-generational process. I do believe, and what I get really excited about, I do believe we are a part of the significant turning point mm -hmm. and the change and the time of change. It does feel like, and I think of like, it does feel like 1750s writing about these ideas, talking about these ideas that, yeah. and maybe it's 30 years later that they come to fruition, right. but the discussions are, are so uh, like this, so profound. Uh, wide-ranging but also very pragmatic as as profound as it as it is in terms of just something like plant medicine that you're talking about being perhaps the biggest influence the most impactful thing that you did for for what sounds like a brain scan that would say would be very uh, low functioning individual has this breakthrough medicine that as you talk about it, I'm sure 99.9% .9 of listeners um, haven't considered it for a therapeutic sense. And, and it's been there for a couple thousand years for people to 
to be able to um, to participate in that. But it's it's through conversations like these that it that it is becoming more and more mainstream, more and more discussed. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it does feel like like you said it's it feels like a fulcrum is is shifting. Yeah. Or we are shifting on the fulcrum. Okay, so on the specifics of, walk me through Dan Engel in 2032 and uh, what you would do if it was 25-year-old you in Chicago, Illinois, what 2032-year-old or 2032 version of you would do with something that you don't really know what's going on, brain, brain fog, but your exact injury, but instead of having to spend 15, 20 years piecemealing it together, what is the ideal scenario? And I want very specifics. They walk into a clinic and get a blood panel. Get Walk me through what that ideal state would be, future of healthcare, hopefully, um, could be like in 10 years for the Dan Angle of, of 2032. Mm-hmm. If that question makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think it's a common yeah, I think it's a, a combination of hardware sciences and software sciences. Uh, I think the, the blood panels have their place. I think uh, doing a brain mapping QEG has its place. Let's see what's upregulated, downregulated. Um, let's see how we can use neuromodulation to bring things back into balance, optimize the like neural circuitry and the, and the cross communication pathways. That's that's pretty easy to do. You know, EEG cap, n- neural impulse. Um, over a series of sessions, and that's going to get better and better over time. We're still kind of in our infancy there. Um, optimizing nutrition. Let's look at the whole person. Let's look at community. Let's make sure your hands are in the dirt. Let's make sure you're looking at the sun when it comes up and when it goes down. Let's make sure you're staying off of screens as much as possible. Let's make sure you're not trying to you know, force a, a star peg into a round hole. Like, what's your gift? What are you here to do? What's a part of your own kind of awakening? And if I'm, if I'm, if I'm only my 23, 25 year old self, I want to make sure I've got mentors, um, people that can really help me become more mature, more virtuous, more kind and compassionate, more of service, more humble, less privileged, um, less entitled. We have a very adolescent culture. And then we get into, you know, some of the software sciences. That was not an exhaustive list of hardware stuff, but um, then we get into medicine work. We get into altered states work. We get into time in isolation, in nature, vision questing. Um, We get into meditation practices, self-regulation practices, working with our mind, mind strategies, um, empowerment-based practices, faith-based practices. Like, let's look at the avatars and the teachers that have gone through the shitter and come out the other side with something to share, like Viktor Frankl, Jesus, um, Rumi, Mother Teresa, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, I put in Audrey Hepburn. She's my freaking, you know, like heroine. Really? Watch her autobiography. Yeah, watch her. Well, it's not autobiography. Watch the biography of Audrey Hepburn. Look, Look at what she went through in World War II. I have no and idea. And when she came out, I mean, she's amazing. She's also just beautiful. I, I, you know, Charade, if you don't have, Charade's like a favorite movie of all time. Her and Cary Grant, I'm kind of a geek on that. But anyway, um, so like, let's find the avatars and let's learn directly from them. Let's get inspired by their walk. 
so that we can actually recognize that our challenges are going to be our greatest teachers. And how do we lean in like the buffalo lean into a storm in order to just recognize that this is going to pass and I can do my part and participate by engaging it, being, being with it. Um, let's also have a transpersonal kind of conversation about the nature of consciousness before and after a body. So we don't have to get so worried about this monkey suit being the, the only time that our consciousness is going to be ever in existence. Um, let's do the science investigation of not uh, near death experiences. And like, I think it's the university of Virginia department of parapsychology has 3,500 case reports on near death experiences from children. And most of them, them can be verified. Um, there's a whole lot for us to put into our educational program and our kind of rearing youth and stewarding adolescents to becoming mature adults. And I think that's the biggest deficit. Um, yeah, one of my heroes, the last thing I'll say in one of my heroes, I just want to give him a shout out because his book is amazing. Um, Bill Plotkin and the Journey of Soul Initiation. It's like a, it's a treatise on how to work with people going through an initiatory process so they can become a more whole, intact human here to serve humanity in all hands on deck type of time. We'll add that link um, to the, to the show notes. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's what a great conversation as, uh, as usual. And it went over time. So I'll let you get your evening back, but Dan, thank you so much for the generosity of insight, time, uh, wisdom that you're, that you've shared, that you continue to share. I recommend everybody go follow you on which do you want to let people know where to find more about you online mm -hmm. yeah a few things that i'm up to I w we may have mentioned some of them uh full spectrum medicine is our education program on psychedelic therapies um with some coaching and community support as well um thank you life is our nonprofit for as a funding stream for people to be able to support others to have medicine experiences that wouldn't be able to afford it on their own um, let's see, uh, on my private side for people to reach out, that would be drdaniel.com. Um, and there are, a f those are probably the things that are happening now. There are some things that are in the pipeline, but I don't know exactly when they're going to launch. So I'll save those for the, the next conversation and time that we talk. Right, and I recommend people follow you on Instagram. It's where, uh, you, you resurface your best tweets and also just share much more visually about uh your life and your exploration so it's it, i love following that account um dan thank you so much again and i really really appreciate it i know listeners are going to love this conversation so thank you you're welcome awesome james thanks was, for having me on oh that was so good thank you dan i'll let you get to your evening but uh thank you sir that was amazing um and sending you love from L.A. Mm, cool, James. Good to see you, brother.